So, we're going to do some time travelling and go to the south slope of the Athenian Acropolis, where you can today visit the ancient Athenian theatre of Dionysus. And it's here that some of the first dramas, as we know them, were ever produced. The first excavators to explore the site were actually the Greek Archaeological Society in 1838. And the site contains not only the theatre, but the remains of two temples of the god Dionysus, one which was probably built in the 6th century BCE, when Athenian state theatre began to be performed, and the other rather later, after most of our surviving plays, premiered. Now, the actual introduction of theatre began under the tyrant Pisistratus, not the democracy, who ruled um, for much of the mid-6th century BCE. And he was responsible for a major expansion of all the Athenian festivals, including those for Dionysus, the ancient Greek god whose worship goes back to Mycenaean times and is intimately connected with wine cultivation, colonisation, poetry and theatre. But the theatre where plays were actually performed in Dionysus honour wasn't originally built of stone. It probably had wooden seats, wooden benches, which were made permanent in about 498. So that's not long after the Athenians expelled the tyrant family and inaugurated that great first democracy in 507. The stone theatre we can see today wasn't actually built until the 4th century, well after the premieres of the great dramas I'm going to talk about, and which you can all see performed on our 21st century stages. But this is what it probably looked like at the premieres. The theatre consisted of a central dancing floor, which was, in the case of Athens, circular, but rectangular in some other early theatres. And the spectators sat on these benches, which partly enclosed the dancing floor, uh, which was actually called the orchestra. It's where we get the word orchestra from. And they were raked into the hillside to maximise everyone's view. The actors actually had a tent, uh, later the stage building, which they entered to change role and mask. It was called a skene, from actually, that's the word for tent, even now in Greek, and it's what we get our word scene from. And the main actors usually performed from an elevated wooden platform, and there were various very interesting mechanisms and props for special effects. Ghosts could be made to arise from a tomb. There was some kind of dry ice. Um, gods could fly in on a crane from Olympus, and another machine was used to roll out dead bodies and other gruesome sights from backstage when the violent deeds, usually taking place out of sight, were reported. But the creative achievement of the Greek dramatists in inventing tragic and comic theatre still takes my breath away, and I've been reading them since I was 16. So just think of the moment when Creon enters the stage at the end of Sophocles' Antigone, carrying the corpse of his fully grown son two millennia before Leah first carried in Cordelia and howled. Or the moment in Aristophanes' frogs, when the god Dionysus rose across the waters of the underworld, accompanied by, guess what, a chorus of frogs, all crying, brekkekex, coax, coax. Sounds a bit like brekkekexit to me. <laughs> and then there is the poetry. Even the centuries that have passed between us and the Greek tragedians do not hide the intellectual force and beauty of the disgraced Ajax's meditation on the effects of the passage of time. Time, so long, so immeasurably long, reveals everything that has been obscure, conceals what has been obvious. Nothing is impossible. Even the sternest oath can be broken and the strongest will. This is just before he commits suicide. But Greek drama is today once again a living cultural presence. It's taught in schools, performed in both professional and amateur theatres, broadcast on radio, and appears in various guises in novels. 
people who've never read any Greek drama um, in a modern-day translation, let alone studied it in ancient Greek, often know something about the heroes of Sophocles' Oedipus or Euripides' Medea, uh, probably two of the most performed of all the plays. The king who uh, killed his father and slept with his mother, or the woman who killed her own sons. The climate of our times has made the confrontational ancient Greek dramas seem powerfully relevant. But they can be deceptive. For many people today, a Greek play will be the first text from antiquity that they encounter. And it's often the first that they feel they can relate to because they can feel very fresh in performance. I've heard audiences gasp when Medea complains about the unfair status of women, not only in society and in the economy, but in the bedroom. And when Oedipus, the brilliant elected leader of Thebes in Oedipus, Tyrannus or Rex, when he throws his weight about and loses his temper with people who are trying to help him, he foreshadows all the politicians whose power has gone to their heads to be seen daily on our news programmes. The pagan, patriarchal, slave-holding Mediterranean society for whom the tragedies were composed can seem very remote, though. And a vital principle to grasp is that the audience of Greek tragedy was actually, socially speaking, completely inseparable from its creative personnel. It's like your local Amdram society. The men, and they were all men, involved in making Greek drama between 472 and 401 BCE that's the seven decades from which almost all of our 45 surviving, 45, we're, we're very lucky, classical plays date. They were almost all just members of the Athenian public. Many of the spectators would have performed in a chorus at some stage in their lives when they were young men. Others would be proudly watching a brother, a son, nephew, grandson or neighbour performing. Greek tragedy seems less daunting if we remember that it was community theatre and a significant proportion of the men involved in the productions were strictly amateurs. But they were also men from very varied backgrounds. Athens' total territory, the ancient name of which was Attica, encompassed many miles of coastline along with some islands, three vast plains divided by mountain ranges, extensive forests, and the long river Kephasus, which flows from the Parnese mountain range in the north all the way to the Saronic Gulf in the west. And while some citizens lived inside the walls of the city, um, their numbers swelled in wartime, and they could have walked to the theatre from their homes in half an hour, others lived at distances of 20 or more miles and would have required a day or two to travel up to town. An estimable colleague of mine has written an article on what did they all do with their donkeys? Where was the donkey park? <laughs> Attica was in fact made up of 139 separate communities, villages or districts or parishes called deans. And these were divided into three groups, coastal, inland and city. And that kind of regional identity was an important factor in Athenian internal relations too. And those who were fellow deans, one of the famous playwrights, Aeschylus, Euripides, Sophocles and Aristophanes, will have known them well. They were all citizens of Athens, they were all residents of Attica. Aeschylus, born in 525, nearly two decades before the revolution that led to the instalment of the democracy, came from Eleusis, an agricultural settlement in the far west of Attica, renowned for its ancient cult of Demeter and Persephone and the mysteries conducted in their honour. Euripides' family owned property on the island of Salamis, where he's said to have been born at least three decades after Aeschylus, and tradition had it that he was a miserable loner who composed his tragedies in a cave on the island. And there is certainly plenty of imagery connected with the sea in his plays. But his dean was actually Thalia, which was well inland, beyond the mountain of Hymatus, east of the city, famous for its bees and its honey. And this upbringing may well be connected with all the trees in his plays. He's obsessed with trees. But Euripides' near-coeval Sophocles was born at Colonus Hippios, a suburban dean, only about a mile to the northwest of the city centre. 
Aristophanes, meanwhile, came from the busy, absolutely city centre deem of Kudathanayim, which included all the hustle and bustle of the marketplace and was exactly the right place to pick up the latest gossip about celebrities and politicians. Now, particular families were involved in theatre, producing both playwrights and actors. Such families were either in the tragedy business or in the comedy business. There's an ancient tradition that Sophocles himself started as an actor, and he only gave up because his voice was so weak that it couldn't be heard in the outdoor theatre. So he started writing, thank heavens. The three great tragedians all came from very well-established families that must have been financially independent enough to allow them to work on their theatre productions more or less full-time. There's no talk of large cash prizes at this time. The point was to win a claim, which in Athens meant accruing influence, powerful alliances, friendships, and unlimited dinner invitations. It was to an inland deem called Icaria that um, the traditional inventor of tragedy, Thespis, um, I'll go back to Aristophanes, Thespis, he's the uh, traditional, original actor-manager who invented it all, um, came. That's where we get the word thespian from. The story went that he was a singer of dithyrams, or hymns to Dionysus, or possibly a mummer who travelled around the villages of the special wagon, staging masked entertainments as he went. And he's believed to have won the first ever competition in tragedy, held at Athens in 534. Yet even centuries before theatre had come into existence, many of its aspects had, of course, been anticipated in Greek life. The performance of Homeric epic, which stretched back hundreds of years, right back to the Bronze Age and beyond, had included extended passages of direct speech, where the bard recited the actual words of Achilles or Hecuba or Odysseus. There'd been mimetic elements in rituals which involved mythical stories like they had noises to imitate thunder and chariot wheels in sanctuaries where gods were supposed to appear. And choruses had used gesture to tell their stories for many, many centuries. What made tragic theatre distinctively theatrical when it was invented in the 6th century was the really spooky phenomenon of an actor assuming a role by masking his identity and speaking in the voice of a long-dead or fictional character, such as Pentheus or Lysistratos. It's a form of necromancy, it's ghost-raising. Theatre and the actor's mask were conceptually inseparable. Actors are often represented um, with or holding their masks. Theatre happened on the cusp between the world the Athenians could see around them, that's the reality of the slope of the Acropolis, and the imaginary world of the play, where they invented heroic Thebes or even the comic underworld. And crossing this boundary happened at the very moment the actor brought to life his fictive identity. So the earliest theatre must have made an overwhelming impression. It combined operatic solo singing, speech, and massive sung-danced choral set pieces, like modern musicals today, you're waiting for the, the big choral movements. From the perspective of our early 21st century, the actor's assumption of another identity is so much part of our cultural environment. It can be very hard to recreate the enormity of its first impact, just as the soaking of our own culture in celluloid, videotape, and digital images means we will never, ever experience the excitement felt, felt by the first cinema audiences. The Greek actor or chorus man often even shed his masculine identity and substituted a female one. And in many, many plays, women are given the central heroic role. They were wonderful drag actors. Take Antigone, written by Sophocles. He'd been a senior Athenian magistrate himself. And I would like to say that being in the Antigone at the National Theatre is a very good recommendation for becoming Doctor Who. <laughs> Both Christopher Eccleston and Jodie Whittaker, who played Creon on Antigone, uh, a production I was involved with, had been or were going to go on to 
impersonate Dr. Who. Okay, Antigone opens at a moment of political crisis. Oedipus and Jocaster, now deceased, had four children of their incest. The two sons quarrelled over the kingship of Thebes and Polynices was driven into exile. Eteocles was left ruling Thebes with the support of his maternal uncle Creon. But Polynices the exile, allied with the king of the important city of Argos, raised a force, attacked his own city under the famous seven warriors who led the alliance at the seven gates. The assault failed, and in the battle, both brothers killed each other. Now, that's just happened. The tragedy begins at dawn after the Theban home victory. Creon, in the ne nearest he's the nearest surviving male relative of the two sons of Oedipus, has very hastily grabbed power. And the play enacts the catastrophic events which take place on one day, his first day in office. It demonstrates the truth of his own inaugural speech in which he declares that no man's character can be truly known until he's been tested by the experience of government and legislation. He comes on, says that, and then it really screws up. <laughs> the very first law that Creon passes, that the body of Polynices is to be refused burial, is in direct contravention of the most ancient taboo protecting the rights of the dead. And mortals who in tragedy transgress these ancient taboos and imperatives always come to see the error of their ways. Now, it may be expedient for Creon and Antigone to take measures to deter possible traitors, but the play reveals that human reasoning faculties are insufficient means for understanding the universe. Antigone buries Polynices, is arrested and sentenced to death by being walled up in a cave. Her fiancé, Creon's son Hymone, pleads with his father to change his mind, but the sentence is not revoked until after a visit by the prophet Tiresias. But it's too late. Antigone hangs herself, Hymon stabs himself, and so does his mother Eurydice. Creon loses everyone that matters to him and ends the play howling in despair. Now, it's sometimes been argued that Creon's law was defensible, given the divisive nature of the civil war which had disturbed Thebes and the urgency for a, of the need for a decisive hand on the rudder of government. Funerals, as politicians everywhere know, are very dangerous occasions. But I'm not in agreement. Thinkers contemporary with Sophocles were involved in developing a new political theory to match the new Athenian democracy, and they thought hard about the mechanisms that allowed humans to live together, achieve a consensus for which the Greek word is homonoia, and cooperate. Protagoras argued the ability to live together in a community required self-control and justice, virtues in which Creon is palpably lacking. He passed his edict autocratically without listening to others or achieving homonoia, didn't even call an assembly of elders, and his domineering attitude towards the views of others renders the outcome of his reign and the play inevitable. But what does make Antigone so astonishing and makes me absolutely convinced Sophocles had got some really, really sassy daughters is that Creon is tested by the initiative of a young female relative. And this completely incenses him. Her goal isn't political influence. She's only obeying the divine law which laid on senior members of all families, and she has now become the senior member of her family at the age of about 14. Those leaders of the family had to perform funeral rites for their kin. Now, Antigone is mysterious, arrogant, deliberately inflammatory, rude, and inflexible as Creon is erratic, but she is shown by the play, I believe, to have been absolutely right. Creon's mercantile and technological metaphors are opposed to the beauty of untamed nature which are associated with his young opponent. She's likened to a fresh northern wind, and Hymone, her fiancé, speaks of wild storms, sea waves, trees, and flooding rivers. The young people in this play, given half a chance, could have allowed fresh air to blow through the streets, hearts, and minds of their long-suffering inland hot city and its people. 
What prevents them, it's not just their new overlords' intolerance of disagreement, but the oppressive legacy of their own family history. Creone won't listen to Antigone, partly because she's just young and female, but partly because she's his niece and engaged to his son. She's also the daughter of his brother-in-law and nephew, Oedipus, which is, of course, a hard act to follow. It's his misfortune, Creon's, that she turns out to... that she happens to be not only his son's fiancée, but his niece. So the play challenges even the distinction between his performance as a public figure and as a family man. He's equally bad at both. He fails to keep his two worlds separate. The drama shows that they are as intertwined as the corpses of Antigone and Hymone locked in a bizarre travesty of a nuptial embrace. And it's the place plea for both politicians and parents to listen to dissenting young voices. I think that actually makes me crying. <laughs> Even describing it. I have, I have daughters of 18 and 20. It's this plea that gives it this heartbreaking tragedy and perennial power. She, this is the most explicitly political of all of the tragedies. It confronts the problems in ruling a community with incredible vigour. And the ancient Greeks already recognised the force of the drama. And in more modern times, the political element has inspired many, many, many topical versions and imitations. Antigone made significant protests um, in Poland under martial law and against apartheid in South Africa. Nelson Mandela was involved in a performance on Robben Island. So who were these Athenians whose city created these wonderful plays? Current scholarship estimates that the population of Attica during this period was about a quarter of a million, but the largest proportion of, uh, but that the large proportion of resident foreigners, metics, who were welcomed with open arms, and slaves, meant that only perhaps 30,000 inhabitants were adult male citizens. The major theatrical contests, which were extremely popular, may have accommodated just over 50% of the citizen body. Perhaps 15,000 went to the theatre. That's all you could get in it. The evidence doesn't allow us to be certain, but it's unlikely that women were present at the premieres, at least, of tragedy and comedy, except perhaps for one or two mature and sensible priestesses. The first audiences of the plays seem to have been dominantly free, Athenian or allied to Athens and male. But we have to remember that uh, the more popular plays were revived in places other than Athens um, for a thousand years until the triumph of Christianity. Um, and already in the fifth century across the Greek world, from Italy uh, to, um, in the fourth century, Bactria. The festivals of the wine god Dionysus, where the competitions were held, fell respectively in the months equivalent to January and April. The January one was called the Lenaia and was only attended by residents of Athens. We know far more about the big one, the City Dionysia or Great Dionysia, which was held just after the start of each year's sailing season. That's to allow spectators to attend from all over the Greek world, the Black Sea, North Africa. Um, and that made it truly Pan-Hellenic, all Greek. Authors submitted proposals for plays to the senior city magistrate in charge of administrating secular and political affairs rather than religious ones, which underlines that drama, although performed at a religious festival, actually fused social and spiritual concerns. The selected tragedians each year were allocated their principal actors, their chorus, and their choregos. This was a wealthy man who sponsored the production by funding the maintenance, costuming, and training of the chorus of citizens, that would be made available to each of the tragedians. A very good idea. Why don't we get our rich people as a form of tax to put on democratic shows? <laughs> the competitions were inaugurated at an event called the Proagon, before the competition. After about 440, this was held in Pericles' Odeon, which was just by the theatre, which was a roof building... So even if it rained, you could perform there. That's where cinemas pick their name Odeon from. All the dramists who were about to compete ascended a rostrum 
along with their actors and chorus men wearing garlands but not costumes and masks, and announced their compositions. The rituals themselves began with a procession called the Asagoge, or Introduction, which annually reproduced the introduction of Dionysus to his theatre in the city sanctuary. So there's this amazing procession. Every year he came from where he uh, was supposed to live on the borders of Attica at a little village called Eleutheri on the border with Boeotia. He's brought all the way into central Athens in a massive procession by torchlight. And he's brought by torchlight to watch the shows. And then the festival opened the next morning with uh, the Pompeii, which means another procession. The city was in an incredible state of excitement. The assembly couldn't be held. Legal proceedings were uh, um, banned. Even prisoners were released temporarily on bail. The procession stopped at several shrines on the way to the sanctuary in order to sing and dance for different gods. The procession defined the relationships between the different social groups that made up Athenian society. It was led by a young unmarried woman from an aristocratic family, and she carried a ceremonial golden basket which would contain the choicest pieces of meat from the sacrifices. The Koregoi, the men who funded the productions, wore expensive costumes, sometimes made of gold. Provision had to be made for the public feast. Everybody got to eat. And the many, many thousands of people attending the festival would have needed a great deal. The bull, specially chosen to be the principal sacrificial animal as worthy of the god, was accompanied by younger citizens who were in military training. There were also hundreds of lesser sacrifices. The sanctuary of Dionysus will have resembled a massive sunlit abattoir, sorry to any vegetarians, attached to a barbecue. It resounded with the bellowing and bleating of frightened animals, was awash with their blood, and smelt powerfully of carcasses and roasting meat. Enormous loaves of bread and wine in leather skins was carried in procession by citizens, while the resident aliens carried the bowls for mixing the wine with the water, borne in pitchers by the aliens' daughters. More groups of men brought up the rear, carrying the enormous ritual phalluses of Dionysus and singing hymns. So the Dionysium still bore traces of the raucous processions that were such an important part of festivals of Dionysus in the country neighbourhoods for centuries before. They included the carrying of a phallus pole, obscene songs, and worshippers dressed in ithyphallic costumes. Ithyphallic means with an uh, erect uh, imitation penis attached. The theatre itself was prepared um, for the culmination, which was the plays, by a purification rite that involved piglet sacrifice. Then the ten elected generals, the most senior elected officers of state, poured out libations. Public herald made announcements naming recent benefactors of the city. There was a display of rows of golden money bars, the revenue that Athens had accrued from the states allied with her. This was quite an imperialistic sort of event. And that was heightened by the public presentation of a suit of armour to all the sons of the Athenian war dead, and I'll be talking about in the next lecture, who'd achieved military age. So we have this very militaristic and imperialistic flavour as well. Then the herald with a trumpet announced the dramatic productions. At the end, the results were decided by the judges, who were just ordinary citizens selected at the very last minute from a cross-section of the tribes. They weren't elected, they were randomly selected to avoid corruption. But they were under pressure to vote in accordance with public opinion, which would be very clear from the applause generated by the performances. If you've had the misfortune to watch X Factor, you'll know what I mean. The, vigorous the victorious tragedian was crowned with ivy and led in a procession like a victorious athlete returning from the Olympic Games um, to a private party. And the general atmosphere of those sorts of parties with drinking competitions, a sexual undercurrent, pipe girls, and carousing outside in the streets until the small hours is brilliantly conveyed by the post-performance party dramatised in Plato's Symposium, where Aristophanes, the comic poet, is the only one who can really drink Socrates under the table. <laughs> 
Now, the physical demands made on actors were considerable, and we are so lucky. We have hundreds of vases related to theatre scenes, and I've spoken to Shakespeare scholars who'd give their eye teeth to, like, two, two pictures of actors in costume in acting. It's one of the most attractive um, aspects of, of, of classical studies. Um, the vocal training was very arduous. They had to sing solo as well as deliver very rapid-fire dialogue and extended orations without amplification in an open-air space. They had to switch mask and roll under pressure quickly and often. They had to take care not to turn their back on the audiences, which is a challenge in the ancient Greek theatre where spectators sit in a semicircle. Some roles required a very powerful presence through extended passages where they remained silent, like Cassandra in Aeschylus' Agamemnon. Others require conveying a character's qualities through gait. Actors had to be very fit. Some roles require, for example, like Io in Prometheus, who is half a cow and needs to leap across the stage as if goaded by a gadfly. Or Philoctetes, who's dreadfully, dreadfully injured, in agony, and has to convey what it's like to be in unremitting pain. Some spend their time prostrate or on their knees, like Hecuba in Trojan Women. Others have to climb onto palace roofs, appear through trapdoors, or fly singing in the theatrical crane. Now, we mustn't be so struck by these amazing actors that we neglect the core element of the chorus, and indeed the numerous unsung backstage operatives and technicians whose labours have vanished without trace. We actually know the word for the guy who actually trained the chorus. He's the Coro Didaskalos. And we also know um, the man who operated the crane. He's the Mechanopoios machine operator. The productions were much more sophisticated in terms of their effects and visual design than we have the evidence to demonstrate. One of the few types of theatre personnel that the ancient dramatists emphatically did not require was the lighting designer. The suffering in Greek tragedy and the laughter in comedy took place by the light of the sun. This is a very favourite vase of mine because it shows a tragic actor who's accidentally, in this comedy, in the comedy, a tragic actor comes in and says, oh, sorry, got the wrong play. Can you see? It's brilliant, isn't it? Now, each tragedian performed a group of four plays, a tetralogy consisting of three tragedies plus a satyr play, one after another through a long morning. The chorus men's last change of costume during tragic performances at the Dionysia, they did changed costume for three tragedies. Then they had to put on the masks and accoutrements made of leather and wool and fur that befitted semi-naked satyrs. Only hours and minutes early, they'd be dressed in one of the three rather different outfits required by the preceding plays in the tetralogy, suitable for the women or men that they had been performing in the previous choruses. But the satyr play is the magnificent, boisterous ending. Hundreds of classical satyr plays were produced. We've only got one, Euripides' Cyclops, in its entirety, together with a substantial part of Sophocles' trackers, Ichnutai, turned famously into Tony Harrison's magnificent uh, national theatre play, The Trackers of Oxyrhynchus. Now, one of the few certainties about satyr is that its gender orientation, unlike tragedy, was very definitely male. The choruses were always satyrs with conspicuous fallacies. You can see here a famous vase now in Sydney, Australia, where the men are actually, the young guy there is looking at his mask, thinking about it, putting it on. Once he's got his mask on, his phallus goes up. <laughs> now, the satyrs confounded most of the polarities by which the Greeks organised the, their conceptual grasp of the world. They were almost human, yet both slightly bestial and marginally divine. They were childlike, and yet often they have bald heads, suggesting they were also old. They lived in the untamed wild, yet in myth they were always present at the dawn of technology and the arts of civilization. 
They're innocent but knowing, stupid but cunning, pugnacious but timid, and very charming. The single boundary they didn't confuse was that between male and female. Their extreme male libido was visually represented in this uh, particular costume. And the subject of satyrama is heroic myth, which favoured plots with escape, hunting, athletics, drinking, eating, and sex. Athletics was very common because it offered possibilities for raucous fun with the ligature which the naked athletes used for controlling their genitals during competitions. There's lots of bits of this that we've got. In Aeschylus's Lost Theori, of which we've got a fragment, Dionysus comments that the satyrs um, have bobbed their ithyphaloi for the athletics events with the result that they look like mouse tails now. <laughs> Tragedy and comedy chose civic settings or citizens' houses. Satyrama almost always is set out in the mountains, reflecting the life of the pre-urban, even sort of Neolithic man. Um, and Trackers is set in Arcadia, where the nymph Silene of the mountain is nursing the newborn baby Hermes, who's about to find a tortoise and invent the lyre. It's really charming. Satyrama shared most of its conventions with tragedy, yet in jocularity and its obsession with the body, a nearer comedy. In Cyclops, cooking, eating, farting and belching are the central jokes. You have to understand, you've just sat through three really grim tragedies and have probably had quite a lot of Dionysus fruit to drink by now, by the time you get to the fourth play. We know there was wine at the theatre. Um, and it was much rowdier than tragedy. Satyrs danced and pranced continuously and used shouting noises. The satyrs and the tra trackers yelled to the audience, ooh, ooh, pss, pss, ah, ah. This is a, like children's pantomime where the audience is supposed to respond. Now, comedy was separate from those tetralogies. It was first formally recognised by being integrated into the drama competitions of the state later than tragedy in 486. A musical chorus of men dressed in comic and often obscene costumes accompanied a knockabout actor or two who cracked jokes, and they also shouted versified abuse at an audience of tipsy citizens. The comedies were put on in the late afternoon after the feast. Comedy didn't glamorise long-dead mythical heroes in a manner of which a tyrant could approve, like early tragedy. It insulted rulers and well-known citizens. Its uh, performers wore cartoon-like comic masks, ridiculing famous people's and gods' features. So you'd have Pericles' mask. They mock anybody who put their head above the parapet in public life. Nobody was immune. They talked freely about sleaze, corruption, and personal toilet habits. They subjected powerful and individuals and groups to vitriolic laughter, which makes most modern equivalents, private eye, spitting image, not the nine o'clock news, look really half-hearted in comparison. The intensity of abuse characters suffered in comic theatre ensured that only robust, popular, and clever men could survive to be re-elected, and the elections are annual in Athens. God, we could do with some of this, couldn't we? Sadly, no pioneering comedies survive, and we only have scraps of information about the dozens of plays performed between the first official comic competition in 486 and the date 425, which is when we have our first comedy. Only 11 Athenian democratic comedies survive, and they're traditionally called old comedies, which distinguishes them from the domestic, genteel, and apolitical new comedies which arose after the Macedonian conquest. The extant old comedies are all by Aristophanes, and their premieres run from 425 to 388. Now, comedy was intimately tied to the democracy, the form of sovereign power, kratos, held by the free populace, the demos of Athens. The other Greek city-states, which also had indigenous local comedy, that's Megara, which bordered on Athens, and Syracuse in Sicily, were also democratic when they invented comedy. Tyrants don't tolerate comedy. The relationship of comedy with political power, the question of who gets to laugh publicly at whom, remains just as close today. 
a good litmus test of any society is its ability to tolerate unfettered freedom of comic expression. The history of political comedy and the influence of Aristophanes has been extremely turbulent. The most savage comedy by Aristophanes is his Knights, performed at that Bibulus Lenaia festival in the month equivalent to January 424 BCE. Now, and that's a Greek comic book version. It's quite brilliant. Hippes, it says, because the knights came on somehow or other looking as though they were riding horses. This is a very important Athenian production, which was rather brilliantly set in, in, in uh, post-revolutionary France. The text gave the world, the knights, not only the term demagogue, a person who leads Agogain, the people, the demos, but its archetypal example, the Athenian statesman Cleon. He was by far the most popular leader to emerge after death, the death of the aristocratic Pericles, who had been repeatedly re-elected every year to top office for three decades. Cleon was no aristocrat, but a member of a nouveau riche family. His father owned a leather business. But he was a champion of the poor. I have no doubts a serious one and a fierce, mesmerising orator. Athens was at war with Sparta for hegemony in the Greek world, so Cleon advocated the stern punishment of Greek city-states which seceded from the empire. He understood that the right of ordinary lower-class Athenian citizens to sovereignty was actually directly dependent on revenue from the subject states. So he was a loyal servant of the working class, but that meant he was a rampant imperialist. The year before Knights, he'd won a famous military victory over the Spartans, and he was riding the crest of a wave. Cleon came from the same district as Aristophanes, Kudathanaim, in the civic heart of Athens. They seem to have hated each other from school days, though Cleon's a bit older. The raw class struggle depicted in Knights makes it the most scathing political comedy of all time. It's like two old Etonians who really hate each other. Knights is set at the house of the personified people, Demos, built on the Penix Hill, which is where the democratic assemblies actually convene. So it's the house of the people, Demos, who's a man. The dominant contemporary politicians, including Cleon, are all slaves of Demos, allegorically. Cleon is called the Paphlagonian, which means a man from what is now northern Turkey, Paphlagonia, so likely to be a slave, and a man whose oratory violently boils, Paphladzo, means sort of boiling rhetoric or bluster. The chorus consists of the upper-class knights, prosperous Athenians who could afford to have horses and serve as cavalrymen, um, very opposed to the ordinary men who work in the infantry or navy from which Cleon drew his support. So... Cleon's enemies decide to oust him from power, to deride what the Athenian elite saw as the parvenu Cleon's atrocious nouveau riche vulgarity. They select a citizen of the very lowest class, a sausage vendor, with a little uh, mobile you know, hot dog man, and train him in oratory, this is the plot, to attack Cleon in parliament. So the Cleon Paphlagonian is attacked for ugliness, gluttony, corruption, bribery, intimidation, and cynically manipulating the people with spurious oracles. He's humiliated by slapstick and beaten at length with a string of sausages. Aristophanes gives by far the best laughs to the sausage vendor. Demos realises he's been cheated by the Paphlagonian and chooses the sausage seller as his new steward. And Cleon, the Paphlagonian, is driven out to the city's gates where he has to take over the sausage seller's job, quarrel with prostitutes, and sell meat for dogs and donkeys. That's the end of the play. But Demos, the people, forges a new deal with the sausage seller, who's now renamed Pick of the Marketplace, Agorakritos, selected out of the marketplace. Agorakritos promises to protect the interests of the people over those of the higher classes. He'll ensure that sailors get paid punctually and knights can't dodge the draft. He's actually 
a fictional version, another one, of Cleon, um, who's a popular politician who supports the lower classes, but he doesn't share Cleon's sleaze and corruption. So Aristophanes has actually responded to this contemporary political climate by producing an ideal picture of a functioning relationship between the people and a leader from the very bottom rung of society who turns out to be an excellent leader. This has rarely been achieved in modern democracies and certainly not in Etonian-dominated Britain. We have never yet had a sausage vendor become prime minister, let alone a good one. Now, Knight's mocks uh, made Aristophanes' career and Cleon's career. This is the important thing to hold on to. All publicity is good publicity. It was the first play Aristophanes won first prize with as sole dramatist. The Athenians adored it. Cleon was certainly in the audience. The atmosphere must have been electric. But Knight's did nothing to damage Cleon's reputation either. He was soon afterwards elected to a generalship, yeah, a couple of months afterwards, two years later, he fought with the Athenians at the Battle of Amphipolis alongside Socrates and was killed, fighting for his nation. Comedy had fulfilled its democratic role. It put a statesman on trial by vituperation and his reputation survived on this occasion. And this actually, to me, indicates a healthy relationship from which we still today have plenty to learn between the arts and the body politic. I want rich people to fund democratic comedy um, where the best democratic scriptwriters are paid by the rich to put on shows for us making fun of our politicians. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> now, some of Aristophanes' plays, like those of the tragedians, were mercifully preserved in the manuscript tradition of Byzantium, I don't know how their obscenity got past the monks who copied them out. The first printed edition was published in Italy in 1498, and once they got into print, they are saved. Soon translated into easy Latin and modern languages, Aristophanes' bracing, obscene and imaginative comedies had a massive impact on the future direction taken both by comedy and by discussions of censorship and freedom of speech. It wasn't until the 19th century that playwrights really discovered or, or were allowed to revive the radical potential of Aristophanes. There really weren't any productions. A French vaudeville version of Lysistrata, in which the women of Athens go on sex strike to persuade their husbands to end the war, was censored. Penned by Francois Benoit Hoffman during the final negotiations for the ephemeral peace treaty of Amiens, it was performed in the Theatre Fado in January 1802. Napoleon was very annoyed by its irreverent manner of treating the war, even on the eve of a truce, and banned it. In Britain, Aristophanes was harnessed to the cause of women's suffrage. The exceptionally obscene Lysistrata had kept it off curricula and away from the public eye. But by 1910, the many actresses in the movement for women's suffrage were looking to ancient dramas to help them make their point. There was a very radical Medea put on at the Savoy in 1907, when the first uh, suffragettes were being force-fed in prison and it became a real suffragette event. When Gertrude Kingston became the lessee of the little theatre, the Adelphi in the Strand, she opened her first season with Lysistrata in which she played the title role. The translator was an ardent supporter of both women's rights and gay rights, A.E. Houseman's much less well-known little brother, Lawrence. He helped found the Men's League for Women's Suffrage in England, and he saw the production as offering an unusual political opportunity. And the Women's Press published Houseman's translation in 1911, after which North American suffrage groups also performed it. And it was also by cutting her teeth on an adaptation of Lysistrata that Joan Littlewood the most important British female director of the 20th century, developed a distinctive brand of politicised musical comic review exemplified in Oh, What a Lovely War. Now, 
Aristophanic comedies have ever since continued to be, be formed, I'm summing up now, and sometimes suppressed. Nowhere has Aristophanes been so contested as cultural property as in late 20th century South Africa. It was originally introduced as part of the classical syllabus read by the colonial masterclasses, both British and Dutch, in their schools and universities. But productions of Aristophanes began in the 1970s to address apartheid with illegal mixed-race uh, theatre troops. In an Afrikaans adaptation by Andre Brink of Birds, staged by the, this is not that production, but it's a rather beautiful one, staged by the Performing Arts Council of the Transvaal's Youth Theatre in 1971, the Birds created a new flag for the new kingdom out of yellow, green, and black feathers, the colours of the African National Congress, which was at that time banned. We all know there are many countries in the world where no political theatre or satire is tolerated. The right to question through comedy every idea and every person in a position of power is surely a linchpin of democracy. Leaders who don't approve of Aristophanic comedy are usually suspect. A high-profile case of censorship occurred in 2002, which sent shockwaves through theatre world. The government of Silvio Berlusconi interfered in the production of Frogs, directed by Luca Ronconi. Ronconi's decadent, vulgar, Romanized god Dionysus, who was the protagonist of this play, was all too intelligible as Berlusconi to third millennial Italian audiences. And this was all, all, that, all that he did was put that poster with the Berlusconi's face as Dionysus, and that got banned. Back in 486, when that epoch-making first comic competition was held, a comic attitude to life was, of course, not new. Celebrations of festivals connected with fertility and viticulture had for centuries before hurled abuse at local individuals while they processed in, in mummers' costumes, sometimes on wagons through the villages, but not with any plot, no story. The stem comb in comodia, comedy, means revel or carousal, while also sounding like the Greek word for an unwalled rural village. So comodia actually means a revel ode with rustic overtones. But ad hominem and ad feminam abuse incorporated into a musical drama, often with a wildly imaginative plot line, was something completely new. The Athenians, in discovering their theatre, had discovered a timeless secret. Not only is comedy a political issue, but satire is a democratic duty. And that's why it's actually taken so seriously by somebody who's actually so sober in his lifestyle as, as in his lot. It's incredibly serious duty. So thank you very much. <laughs>